What's up, my friends? Jason Menace here. So glad to be with you guys here once again on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Today is podcast 138, and we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 25 and 26, where Paul gives evidence of the gospel before royalty. So get your Bibles out and let's jump into Acts chapter 25 as we continue our study here in the book of Acts. Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. So today here on the podcast, we're continuing our study here as we look at the life of Paul. Now we know that Paul had entered Rome and now he is facing a lot of these uh, challenges, or I should say, he's gonna be heading out to Rome and we're gonna be covering that in the next few podcasts. But here he's gonna present his case before Festus and it's gonna get to a point where again, no matter what Paul says, no matter what he does, uh, people are not gonna listen to him. But here's a great thing. And I just had gone through this myself uh, recently with an individual that I was sharing the gospel with they didn't respond in a way that I was hoping they would respond. But in the end, guess what? They heard the gospel. They heard a part of my testimony. And I gave evidence as to why I'm a Christian, why I believe in the rationality and the reasonableness uh, and the overwhelming proof of Christianity. Now, they didn't convert, but I planted seeds. And this is certainly what we're going to be seeing here on podcast 138 as we look at Acts chapter 25 and 26. So if you have a Bible, let's dive into this because one of the amazing things about this passage is several things, actually. One, it's kind of a repeat. We're going to kind of see a lot of familiar information that we've seen in previous podcasts because he's going to be sharing his testimony. You're going to be seeing some of the same kind of challenges of how they're going to try to trap uh, Paul and how it doesn't work. And so, uh, you know, when we when we dive into looking at how Festus replies to Paul, in the defense that Paul gives and the evidence that he gives, these are things that we've seen again throughout Scripture in Acts 17 and Acts chapter 22, and also we're going to see some of the same attacks in chapter 23. So it's and it's not a recap per se because these are new events that are taking place in Paul's life, but it's going to you know deepen our understanding of how Paul was resilient. And I think that is what jumps out of the page to me as I look at the scripture is at this point, you would think that he would just give up and just say, forget it. I'm not going to tell you guys anything else because no matter what I tell you guys, you're not listening to me. But that's not, in fact, the case. And let's see. So the first thing we're going to see here is that Paul presents his case before Festus. And this is in chapter 25. And let's read verses 1 through 12. It says, now there, now three days um, after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Now, after he stayed among them, not more than eight or 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat uh, on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews 
who had come down from Jerusalem, stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. Verse 9 through 12. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Notice verse 12. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. So there are several things that we automatically see right here in this particular passage where Paul presents his case before Festus. Now remember Festus, he was now the governor or the procreator of Judea. He travels, he makes a point to travel to Jerusalem to hear why there was such an uproar about this individual before the chief priest. Remember, this has just been an ongoing situation from Felix to Festus. And then for, from verses 2 through 5, you see again this elite Jewish movement among these, you know, these leaders. They're employing the same plot as you go back to chapter 23, verse 12, to have Paul ambushed and killed. They tried that the first time, the Romans stepped in there and they intervene. And so then they try to do it again. But notice this phrase here, let the men of authority among you go down with me. So Festus, he doesn't give in to the demands of the Jews. So even as Paul's not giving up, it's interesting that even though there was no evidence to bear witness to Paul being guilty, they're not giving up though on trying Paul again and again and again. So Paul's not giving up. Festus here is not giving up. He's not giving into the demands of the Jews. Instead, he requests that they return with him to Caesarea where he remains in control. And, and then he can use the fate of Paul for his leverage. So it, it, this is getting very political. And my friends, oftentimes that's the case when something is not right, when you're seeing a lack of common sense or the evidence has been presented and it doesn't matter who presents it, what credentials they have, and how many witnesses. It just doesn't seem to change people's minds. So it gets political, but beyond that, and what we have to underscore here, is the great deceiver. What Satan does to try to cause people not to see the truth. And this is certainly what we're seeing here. And so after, you know, he, he stayed among them, it says in verse 6, uh, for about 8 or 10 days, you know, he meets with the Sanhedrin. Festus returns to Caesarea, and then he convenes an official hearing in court to now decide what to do with Paul. Now, you and I know at this point, Paul should have been released, but he's not released. And then it says, when they arrived, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem, stood around him. So still after two years, two years of Paul dealing with this, his accusers are still unable to find fault with him. We just saw that in the previous podcast in chapter 24, verses 2 through 9. They waxed eloquently 
about why he should be tried. And remember, they were trying to get him on defiling the temple. They're trying to get him for blasphemy. They're trying to get him for insurrection. But none of these things were sticking. So at this point, Paul was probably try, uh, uh, tired, I should say, of defending himself against these three false accusations. You go back to chapter 21, verses 27 through 36. Again, mentioning chapter 24, verses 5 and 6, and also verses 10 through 21. So we know that Paul, he knows, and everybody else for that matter knows, that he didn't defile the temple. Go back to Acts 21, verse 29. And he remained a strong advocate of law and order. And you see him bear that out in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. He's practicing what he preached. So Festus then sets forth a compromise then to have Paul tried in Jerusalem. So he's trying to appease the Jews. And he's trying to appease Paul by saying, we'll do it in a Roman court. Because now Festus does not want Paul to appeal to Caesar and then get word that this has been dragging on from the time of Felix now to Festus and they still haven't resolved this issue. Now, when Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, he knew that if he returned to Jerusalem to face the trial that is being proposed to Festus, he would be assassinated at this point in time. My friends, this is important because, I mean, some of the work that I've even done in ministry and a lot of my colleagues and friends who have traveled to very dangerous zones to share the gospel, to spread the gospel, to get churches uh, planted, to work with the local government to do things that they feel that the Holy Spirit has directed them to do. They also, again, in faith, yes, but they also are using common sense. And notice that Paul is using common sense here. He's sensitive to what God has called him to do, but he realizes that, look, yeah, God protected me the first time, but just because I don't believe God's going to protect me the second time doesn't mean that God doesn't care about me. It just means that I'm looking at the situation before me and I'm using my brain here. And so he exercises his right. This is not a cop-out. He exercises his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to the highest court. It's, the, the word here is prov, provoti. So he appeals to the highest court to be before Caesar, the emperor. Now, that does not mean that Caesar himself, perhaps, that Caesar himself would, would take on this matter. But there's a lot of courts around the emperor, right, that, 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 would, that people reside over and, and, and get, of course, the favorability one way or the other uh, from Caesar. And then they themselves would then issue that decree. So, of course, then at this point, we're told in verse 12 that he confers, that is Festus, with the council. And he says, okay. Then to Caesar, you're going to go. So it's important that Festus was making sure that before he agreed to this, that he was seeking advice from his advisors and his legal counsel people, because he wanted to ensure that Paul was within his rights to appeal his case before Caesar and that Festus, by letting him go now from his district as procreator, that he was in fact... Uh, making sure that he was doing what he had to do before he sent him to Rome, therefore nullifying any court decisions, any lower court decisions, that is. So whatever they had on Paul was nullified, and now they're sending him to go to Caesar. And so that's where now we pick things up in chapter 25, and we're going to be seeing now in verses 13 through 22, 
And this is where Festus now tells King Agrippa about Paul. It says, now when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king of uh, Bernice, arrived at Caesarea and they greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. And was, when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat at the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So now this is really a fascinating passage of scripture where you get insight. And it's, one, and you, and it's curious to know how Luke discovered this account. I don't know. He doesn't mention it, obviously, but he was a colleague, a companion member of Paul. He was exposed to a lot of these people that were probably communicating to Luke on behalf of Paul oftentimes. So there were probably times where Paul was, again, being imprisoned. And he, and of course, Luke had access to him and they probably would use Luke to, you know, um, convey messages back and forth. So at some point in this time that Paul, of course, from the Felix days to now the Festus days, Luke has become very acquainted to a lot of these individuals um, whose fate, obviously, who had the fate of Paul in their hands, but we, we know divinely, providentially, God is in control and is using these people to continue, again, to use Paul for his glory. Now, supposing that Paul was guilty, when, remember, given the uprise among the Sanhedrin, you would think that this new governor, um, again, who's unfamiliar with Judaism and Christianity, that is Festus, it's interesting, you know, at this point that, you know, he would seek, you know, counsel from Agrippa to get Agrippa's take on these things. But again, he's doing it at a time when Paul has already appealed to Caesar. So this is fascinating because it also shows you insight now to where Festus lies. You wonder spiritually, was he being moved and compelled to consider Christianity? We don't know anything about him at this point, you know, after this point when he, when Paul is being released in the book of Acts, that is. But again, we know that seeds were planted and you can also see how uh, Festus is now seeking the advice of King Agrippa because he is confused. And remember, King Agrippa, as I'm going to lay out in a minute, was very familiar because you see here where it says when, when, when Agrippa hears what Festus says to him about Paul, he says, I would like to hear the man myself. Well, this is interesting because Agrippa was a Jew. And not only that, but Agrippa was also well-versed in Palestinian politics. So now at this point, remember, this has been going on long enough. And so now Agrippa hearing, hearing from Paul is not going to persuade Festus one way or the other, I don't think, because of the appeals already to Caesar. 
It's just, I believe, an opportunity where God's saying, look, I'm having you here, Paul. You need to trust me. Because one by one, as I told you when I appeared to you on the road to Damascus, you will present the gospel. You will be my messenger in front of kings. And so here we have one of the prophetic words that Paul had received when he was converted to Christ, that he is now doing what Jesus told him years prior that he would be doing. So here Agrippa is a Jew. He's well-versed in Palestinian politics. And he does have the power to depose and elect a high priest. So perhaps in a way, again, it doesn't say this, but Festus looking to Agrippa, he doesn't have the power to say, hey, you need to release this man. He's not guilty. But maybe to, to apply pressure to the Jewish people, to the Sanhedrin, who's making, again, a huge case about this for the last two years, and yet they can't prove why these three accusations are in fact true. And so perhaps maybe Festus is saying, maybe Agrippa can apply some pressure and maybe we can work out a deal. And if Paul does go to see Caesar, he's going to say, hey, you know, that guy Festus, that guy Agrippa, man, these guys were solid people. They did the right thing to protect me as a Roman citizen. Well, let's see what follows now in verse 23 as we continue to read this passage now. And the second thing now we enter is that Paul makes his case before royalty. So verse 23 says, So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice uh, came with great pomp. That's uh, um, ostentatious display. So they're making a huge deal about this whole thing in front. Festus, the Jewish people, and this man, Paul. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men. So there's commanders of the cohorts. There's uh, a lot of leading people of the city that are there. So again, Agrippa's taking advantage of this to show off. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And then it says in verse 24, And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting, that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. So there he's, he's saying he doesn't have something definitive. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to uh, indicate the charges against him. And then notice it says, in the beginning now in chapter 26, verse 1, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Verse 2, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life for my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews. A O king, why is it? Thought an incredible, but any of you that God raises the dead. 
I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 10, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And it says in verse 11, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest at midday, O king. I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me. And those who journeyed with me, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will bear to you, or excuse me, appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Then verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Then it says in verse 22, To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said to him, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things have, has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to, to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now, that certainly is an indication to me, as I was saying earlier, that they were, they were and again, it's interesting that Luke heard about these things. And could you imagine the conversation that Luke would have had to Paul after him presenting uh, his case before royalty, before King and, and Bernice with all the commanders and all the cohorts that are there. Um, but instead, 
you know, he had already appealed to Caesar and they're thinking to themselves, this command could have been released, but that's, that's assuming that that was the intent as to why Festus had Agrippa. Maybe to have Paul say, mm, on second thought, I don't appeal to Caesar because remember, sometimes it would take months for them to be able to receive information to Rome about certain, you know, prisoners that were appealing, um, in this case, appealing to uh, Caesar. So let's, I know this was a huge portion right here where Paul makes his case before royalty. So let's look at it verse by verse and kind of take some of these things in in their proper order to make sense of them. So if you go back now to chapter 25, verses 23 and following, notice that Agrippa puts on a full display, you know, of his power. And it's a reminder to the Jews who they serve. Again, this is an indication of what Paul was up against. This was about money. This was a power. And again, nothing's new under the sun. Same thing with what we're dealing with uh, all over the world. Now, this royal setting, member was fulfillment. As I was saying earlier about the words of Jesus, that not only did he convey Christ and his resurrected body on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, but let's go back a little bit further than that in Luke chapter 21, verse 12 where he says, they will lay their hands on you and they will persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. At this period of time, what is amazing is that Paul is actually, you know, encountering a lot of people who are, um, in the business of, of working out what the law says according to, to, to Romans and according to the Jews. And in this case, what we see with Paul is that he himself is choosing to live according to the word of God. And he's not giving in to what these royal, high-powered, sophisticated, elite people are saying. He's not intimidated. He's not going to be intimidated. And that's something that I love about Paul. I love the fact that Paul is choosing to uh, follow what the word of God tells him to do. And that's something, my friends, that when we start getting into chapter 26 now and you see his defense, we may not be able to relate to what Paul was going through at this point in time. But let me tell you something. His defense that's recorded here is brilliant. And there are going to be times in your life, and again, the more bold you are, the, 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 the more confident you become in your conviction before Christ to present the gospel to people, you will face some of these things. And some people God has raised up in their personalities and in their calling and their giftedness to present the gospel in front of people like this. Now, this is Paul's first time before King Agrippa. And, and if, you, if right now we know, historically speaking, there's nobody who's doing what he's doing, who's presenting to royalty this way. I mean, this was entertainment, you guys. This was entertainment for people back then. And Paul took advantage of it. So today it'd be like me presenting the gospel before Congress giving a case before people like that and people watching, you know, and, and a lot of people who are, who are, you know, high powered individuals are hearing 
the gospel being presented by a godly man like Paul. And so this, this, this had to be very long. Paul takes an opportunity. He's given the time. We're not told of any time limits. So he presents from chapter 26, beginning in verse 2, all the way to 23, a case. And so at this point, it's quite clear that Paul is innocent before the Jewish rulers. And Festus and Agrippa, these high-ranking Roman officials, are listening to him talk about how he came to Christ. And so Paul takes a measured approach. And this is important, if, if, if I may, to, to, to just stop and encourage you listening or watching that if you've never written down your testimony, if you've never taken time to, again, in a thought-provoking way, in a, in a prayerful, spirit-filled way, to methodically lay down how God has worked in your life, to take that measured approach and think, okay, if I was speaking to an audience of non-believers, how would I communicate this? If I was on the university campus and I have an audience of students who are hecklers, how would I share my testimony? If I give an opportunity before my church's student ministry to share my testimony, what would that look like? See, it, it would look differently. It would look differently, wouldn't it? And that's important. So when, when we see Paul take this measured approach, he reworks his defense now by sharing, notice, a personal testimony because he has a mixed audience. So this is different than chapter 24. This is different than chapter 22. This is different in chapter 17. And I like what the expositor's Bible commentary of the New Testament says. It says, quote, yet Paul's speech before Agrippa II is not just a personal defense of himself. It is also a positive presentation of the gospel with an evangelistic appeal. One, according to the Old Testament prophets, the Christ would suffer, rise from the dead, and proclaim light to both Jews and Gentiles. You see him saying that in verse 23. What God did in and through Jesus Christ was done openly, not done in a corner, verse 26. Believing in the prophets leads one to accept redemption in Christ, verse 27. Number four, Paul's prayer for all who hear is that they may become what I am, except for these chains, verse 29. So after this climatic speech of Paul, all that remains for Luke is to sketch out the apostle's journey to Rome and his ministry there. Thus, says the expository's Bible commentary, completing the geographical framework of Luke's presentation and concluding in and including it on a note of triumph, end quote, according to chapter 28, verse 31. So that's a, it's a nice synopsis of what this expository commentary is saying in regards to how Paul presents his case before them. So when you see verse 2 and 3, although Agrippa was cruel and morally corrupt as a ruler, nonetheless, it gave Paul some relief to finally present his case before a ruler who actually was familiar with some Judaism and also the growth of Christianity. So when he says, I consider myself fortunate before you, King Agrippa, he was showing that, he's recognizing, and the fact that he was aware of that is interesting as well. Now, as I mentioned before, in, in Paul's two previous defenses, as we see in verses four and following, he affirmed his commitment to his Jewish heritage. So never when Christ or, you know, appeared to Paul and he became a Christian in Acts chapter nine, never did Paul actually reject his Judaism. You notice that? 
And a lot of times we have to be careful in the Western world. Yes, we're not saved by works. But G, but 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 the Jews, in this case, Paul, who was a Christian Jew, right? We, today we call them Messianic Jews. They were observant Jews because they realized as a Jew and Christ who was a Jew, he fulfilled the law. So they, they were seeing Christ in the law. So he was committed to his Jewish heritage. He didn't reject it because he became a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. He says that in Acts chapter 22, verses three through five, you can look up, you can look it up yourself. In Acts chapter 24, 14 through 16, Galatians chapter one, verse 14, Philippians chapter three, verses four through six. So what Paul is doing in verses six and following now is that he stands by the belief that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's, he fulfilled the prophecy that the prophets were telling us about. And then remember that it wasn't, it wasn't over with Israel. Just because this new movement was happening, this new religion, if you will, of Christianity, doesn't mean that God abandoned Israel and was substituting it for something else. No, that he would deliver his people of Israel one day, that they would receive the resurrection as promised in Daniel chapter 12, verse two, that people will be raised from the dead. He said that, that God raises people from the dead. Now remember Agrippa who, for, who oversaw the temple treasury and also, as I mentioned earlier, appointed the high priest, he aligned himself with the Sadducees and also their theological beliefs. So this is an also, also an interesting tactic, which goes back to, as I was saying before, when you want to present your testimony, you got to know your audience. Paul does this intentionally, knowing that Agrippa, who was familiar with Judaism and familiar with Christianity, but not familiar enough, and it was aligning himself with a movement that ran contrary, of course, to a lot of Judaism, most of it, that is, and of course, clearly rejected Christianity. He gives the opportunity to say, hey, let me give you some evidence that Judaism is about the resurrection and Christ rose from the dead. And that's why I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And again, I'm a guy who's dedicated as an observant Jew. We have been anticipating th these things and right before our very eyes, right in our lifespan, this has been fulfilled in front of us. So what Paul does now in verses nine through following is he refers back to when he was once like the Jewish officials. So then he ties it back, and says, hey, I was once dark and blind. I was, I was, I was a zealous, uh, you know, a religious leader that was appointed by the Sanhedrin to do the persecution that I was called to do. So I joined a lot of efforts to persecute Christians and to prosecute them for blasphemy and try to get them to recant. And he says, and he was, and this is an interesting phrase here in verse 11 that Paul doesn't use anywhere else. He says, and I punished them often in all the synagogues. And notice he says, and I tried to make them blasphemy and raging in an end and raging fury against them, I persecuted them. So there was such a hatred that he exposes that he had even more so than Festus probably showing right now. So he's letting him know that I was probably worse off than you, Festus, in so many ways. Even though, of course, Festus has his own particular sins, as you know, in central sins and corruption that Paul didn't have when he was just working with the Sanhedrin. So in verses 12 through 18, now Paul, when he recant, he recounts his conversion, going back again to chapter 9, verses 1 through 30, that you can read, and also chapter 22, verses 5 through 21, that when he was on the road to Damascus and how he got saved, he was talking about how it was so difficult and yet he broke. 
And I think that's insightful, guys, because oftentimes we can make excuses or, or we can look at certain people and think there's no way that person. I mean, matter of fact, and again, I don't know the guy, but it's just so sad how quickly people responded to the conversion of Justin Bieber. And of course, now the people that he had been surrounding himself with about how a lot of them are living double lives, they're not really living out Christianity and some of their theology are whack. But, but nevertheless, that doesn't discredit whether or not Justin Bieber has actually put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But it's so sad that oftentimes Christians, especially in the Western world, they're quick to dismiss a, a claim about a miracle. They try to reason it away. And at the same time, when someone like a Justin Bieber or a high-powered official, in this case like Agrippa or Festus in Paul's day, were to come to Christ, most people would look at that and, and, and not believe it. Now, again, sometimes when you hear some of these things, they're pretty radical. So yeah, my first um, you know, sign of, of, or my first reaction, I should say, is, is to be skeptical, but never should I disbelief to the point where God is not capable or able, I should say, to do the miracle. And we're, a lot of times we're quick to dismiss those things and we have to be careful. So when in verse 19 and following, when he said, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. No, no matter how uh, despondent he was at the time or how furious he was against the way, the Christians, that is, and how he was resilient to put an end to all of these Christian people and how defiant they were being to him that, that he believed. Again, because remember, Christians did not respond in anger, or I should say in, in, um, they weren't responding with violence. And even though he had all the backing and the support from all the Jewish elite people, nevertheless, he was not disobedient to this heavenly vision, even though it ran contrary to everything that Paul believed at the time, of course, you know, being Saul of Tarsus. So it, it was actually common, by the way, too, and again, this is important with the presentation that Paul was giving, this long presentation. For it was common for ancient presenters to justify their actions by bringing in or giving account to a divine vision. And that's what Paul's doing here. So now he's bringing that in there because that was a persuasive argument. As I was saying earlier in the West, a lot of times when you hear people's testimonies, and they talk about the spiritual battles out there or seeing demons or seeing angels. People are like, well, it's really cool. But then there are a lot of skeptics and a lot of people who disbelieve it immediately because it's never happened to them. That's not something you see every day. So are you really sure? Were you on something? Not getting enough sleep? Maybe it was just a dream. And I get it. Again, you're, you, can, you can maybe give some pushback and challenge it but again, if it's been proven to be what that person's saying, and, and again, it's overwhelming, right? Beyond a reasonable doubt, you have to accept it. And, and what Paul's saying is for this reason, he says, I, once I receive this, this revelation, the real reason why uh, the Jews arrested me was because they rejected the message that I was giving them about repentance. And I'm risking everything. And remembering who I am, and I've dumped everything that I was believing at the time because of this divine vision, this heavenly vision. And then in verses 22 through 23, when he concludes his case now, what Paul does is he references now to Moses and the prophets. 
And this is huge. Now, this is something clearly that Agrippa was very familiar with because remember, the Sadducees only howled to the Torah. And he uses as a key evidence about the coming Messiah who would suffer and that he would die for the sins of mankind, not just for Jews, but also for Gentiles. So now he's giving this appeal to the Gentiles saying, this is not just a religious debate between me, like a different fraction among the Jews. I follow a savior of the world that was being prophesied by the Jewish prophets of long ago that has been, been fulfilled in our lifetime. And you have an opportunity to receive it. And he says, being the first to rise from the dead, what he's saying here is that the Holy Spirit uses... The Holy Spirit is using Paul to speak now of this language about the resurrection that none of them have ever heard. And this is going to be a continual thing that Paul's going to be expounding on. He had already written out about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 23. And so hopefully, we don't know, but maybe a lot of these people in this audience were able to read a lot of the Paul's letters at this point. Remember the the prison letters had not yet been written because most of those were written when he goes to Rome and, and he's waiting for his, his appeal to Caesar. But this language that he's using about the resurrection and, and presenting it before royalty and then hearing something that they've never heard before, that's amazing. That's amazing. Now, of course, in verse 24, Festus thinks that Paul's teaching about the resurrection is utter nonsense. And therefore, what he does is he insults his intelligence and his formal education. So he's just thinking in the end, I'm just, I'm tired of this guy. I can't, I can't take it. But yet Paul says, I am not out of my mind. The kings know, the, the king knows about these things. So he's saying, okay, if I may have lost Festus at this point, but I'm going to appeal to King Agrippa again. And remember, Festus, you brought King Agrippa here to listen to him. He's not rejecting me like you're rejecting me. He knows. So he's, so what Paul does is he points back to the actions of Jesus and he points back to the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire saying, you guys, you do what you want with the message I'm giving you because God's given you free will. But when you look at the actual events that are taking place, when we look at the historical events that are taking place, you know something unique, something special, something divine is taking place. And then he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. So notice he's drawing King Agrippa in. So although Agrippa didn't embrace Paul's teachings about Jesus at this point in the resurrection, it gives him clear understanding of who Jesus is in light of predictive prophecy. So Paul did his job. His job was not to convert Agrippa or Festus. Matter of fact, again, how many times did Paul say, look, these false accusations, I mean, repeat it again, are, are nothing but that. They're false. There's no evidence to, 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 to support that I have defiled the temple, undermined the religion of Judaism in any way, shape, or form. I'm not trying to get a bunch of people together to kill you guys, uh, to, to destroy the temple, to go after Caesar. But nevertheless, he says, that's not what's important. What's important is Jesus Christ and what he came to do. And he died for all of our sins. And I'm a follower of him. So Agrippa responding to Paul's challenge in a cynical matter by sidestepping the issue because he doesn't want to lose favor, or I should say King Agrippa, that is, shows you again that at the end of the day, you guys, and I've been around a lot of these people, I'm sure you have been as well, they don't want to give up their reputation. They're not willing to sacrifice something by receiving the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And it's sad. And so 
to prevent things from getting too personal, Grip abruptly ends the hearing. And what he does is he sides with the innocence of Paul. But notice Festus, you know, he doesn't say, well, let's, let's do something about this. It, this. it just ends because he's appealed to Caesar. And then, again, this is reminiscent of when Herod and Pilate saw no wrong in Jesus. But again, they did nothing. And my friends, that's what we're going to see. Oftentimes, what we're going to see is we're going to see people who are faced with the truth. And they know it's true. And they can't refute it. They're not even, they're not even trying to refute it. But they're not going to give in to the truth. And it's hard to see that. So I just pray after we looked at Acts chapter 25 and 26 on today's podcast, that one of the key takeaways is no matter what you go through, don't fall prey to fame, to popularity, to what the populace says or what the, what the majority of people are saying. Don't fall prey to deception. Don't give in to lies. And when God calls you to do something and it may be difficult, don't automatically assume that God is not calling you to do it. Because a lot of times us Christians, we think, especially in the West, when we haven't faced much persecution, for the most part, even though it's growing and it's changing slightly, as you go in other parts of the world, they get it when they see what Paul was going through here in Acts 25 and 26. They get it because they've been in it. It's real to them. It's not just a story from Paul and like, okay, well, what's the takeaway? Oh, just be bold in your faith. And then when you're given all these opportunities, you're not being bold. So we have to take this lesson and apply it with great conviction. And that is really the heart of what we're seeing here. So when you are going through something hard, don't dismiss it and think, well, God wouldn't put me through that. No, he will because he's trying you. He's refining you because he wants you to be complete, lacking nothing, as the Bible says in James chapter one, verses five through seven. And we see that consistently with Paul. And, and, and you can think this was a waste because it doesn't say anybody was converted, but you know what? He brought clarity. And oftentimes that's what God wants from us is just to bring clarity. So my friends, thank you so much for watching. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for your support. If you've never subscribed to my YouTube channel, would you do that, please? Jason P. Jimenez, you can go on YouTube if you're just listening or if you're watching this right now. Thank you for watching. Hit that like button. Share it with your friends. We need your guys' support. It means the world to us here at Stand Strong Ministries that people like you are listening and watching this podcast, that you're growing in God's word uh, together. So I pray that God will continue to use you, that you'll continue to speak the truth boldly and that you'll continue to stand strong in the word. Love you guys. And until next time, keep standing strong.